welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Welcome to Church at the Well. If you are just joining us or um, you're new to our our family or you forgot what happened seven days ago, we are in a mini-series called Unbelievable. And it's a journey where I'm actually interviewing my father, Sunder, um, for his journey of faith that we're saying was kind of unlikely and unexpected. And the first week we talked about his journey of faith from kind of religion to following Jesus. Last week around uh, how as, as a person who loves and believes in science can also love and believe in and follow Jesus. And today we're talking about something that on the one level you might say, well, it's not that unbelievable, um, but it is very unlikely. It doesn't happen very often. And that is that um, over 30 years ago, now my father traded in his sort of textbook, the textbook here for a new book, <laughs> uh, the scriptures and left engineering and to become a pastor. Now, when we talk about unbelievable, we say that's not a common thing for people to change. You know, you might say, oh, I used to be in a, uh, you know, work with nuclear reactors and now I teach mathematics. Right, okay, right. that. Yeah. But no, now I'm, I'm a pastor. Yeah. I've changed careers and everything like that. Um, the truth is, and, and what's interesting about it is you said last week how you had always wanted to be an engineer. Right. You were always wired for logic and study. I would say you are a lifetime nerd getting yeah. to know you. Uh, I married a nerd, so now I know. Uh, uh, there's this funny story when Jen and I were dating. She came over to visit one day, and I was still living with you guys at our house. And she had brought this, uh, she was teaching math at the time, and she brought this little paper plate. And on the back of it, there was this equation scribble. And she said, look, I proved today how one equals two. And I was like, yeah, see, this is the problem with math, right? Just when you say, when you figure out one doesn't equal two, someone, some mathematician comes along, says one equals two. There's such a thing as imaginary numbers. So I gave it about 13 seconds of thought because I, I liked her, and, but I had no interest in it. So she goes home. The next morning, I'm in the shower, and I hear her banging on the door. And it was you saying, Vijay, yeah. I said, what, what? I thought something's wrong. <laughs> I figured out how one equals two. I said, good for you. Like, call Jen. Uh, I don't even so, remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. this is, it was a wired into you. It's a part of who you are. You love that. And yet you make this change. I remember being four years old, moving into a new house. The house we were moving into was the house next to our church that we had been attending and uh, as a part of the family and you as sort of serving as a volunteer and things like that. But now you were becoming one of the pastors. How did that change um, come about? Because it's, it's not a, a trajectory that people would, it's not, certainly mm. not you plan when you thought, okay, I'm going to go to IIT, then MIT, and then become an engineer, yeah. and then I'll become a pastor. No, yeah. Nowhere on your radar. And many people would say, oh yeah, those are two very different kinds of things to do with your life. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well, it all started out by a discovery of uh, a book which is a commentary on one of the books of the Bible uh, that was laid out in a logical fashion that gave me great understanding of my new faith in Christ. So I began studying it. Then I had this desire to teach it to other people. Mm. Then my sphere of teaching influence began to grow gradually. Uh, we got married and settled down and started attending the church that I eventually pastored for 36 years. I was teaching an adult Sunday school class there. Slowly, my pastor would recommend me to speak every now and then at small churches that needed someone in the pulpit on a Sunday. And then when he accepted an invitation to go overseas, he really surprised me by saying, Sundar, I'm going to recommend that the elders of our church hire you as the preaching pastor in our church. Would you be interested in something like that? So it was such a natural, mm. gradual move with never any planned tr transition in my career. But when that choice was set before me, you Looking back upon yeah. my life, everything seemed to make sense. And then mom was totally on board as well. And then you, you guys were too young to engage deeply as you would today. But 
it seemed to make sense to us. And so when the call came from the elders of the church, we took that as an indication that this was God, what God wanted for our life. It was a natural next step. It kind of fit the personal video of my life, if you yeah. will. You know? That's good, which is a good kind of lens even to think about how you take decisions is looking at that pathway right. and trajectory. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I think one of the reasons people would say, well, that's such a dramatic move, mm. is we have this idea that there are certain kinds of work or study or activity in life that are um, uh, non-sacred. They're everyday, ordinary, nothing supernatural or, quote, spiritual about mm. them, mm. and God isn't that interested in them. We, and so there's some kind of work like that, which maybe we would have put of like, you know, uh, safety testing on nuclear reactors, yeah. which you used to do. Very important. Yeah. All the rest of the world is glad you do it. <laughs> yeah. But it's not spiritual right, work, exactly, right? Yeah. It's mm. not holy work. Mm. And then there's other work like pastor, priest, a missionary, uh, you know, uh, Mother Teresa, like, oh, if you get a call in to, to right. become a nun or something, well, that's a calling and that's holy work. In fact, I remember when I made the transition of, uh, out of sort of business into pastoral ministry, people kept using the word Oh, it's a calling, isn't it? My colleagues. So there's this real kind of distinction and separation between those two things. Did you ever feel that or think that way? And why do you think that's, why do we think we think that way? Well, very much so in the beginning, because in my initial exposure growing as a follower of Jesus, the people that I would listen to, some of them, either explicitly or implicitly conveyed that idea Mm. that, you know, this is all up here, what you're doing. But the real ministry is when you become a full-time worker. That was a famous phrase, full-time worker. Mm. Again, like in my whole journey to even becoming a pastor, it was a gradual awareness and a realization that that was a very artificial divide. I think most people think that way because they don't have a good theology of work or what the Bible teaches about work. For example, the opening chapters of the Bible shows God not inside a church or inside a synagogue. He's actually getting his hands dirty. He's working Mm. and he is making and fashioning human beings. But it says he took mud and clay Mm. and then he breathed life into it. So God at work is how the Bible begins. And then when he made human beings, he put them in a garden. Mm-hmm. And he said, now you beautify that garden. You tend and cultivate the garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the words that the Bible uses are called ruling and subduing, which don't carry this idea of this tyrannical destruction of the environment that many people blame Genesis chapter 1 in the Bible for. It actually means to use your God-given faculties mm-hmm. to study creation and then to use that knowledge to harness creation for the benefit of humanity and the glory of God, yeah. which means it is as sacred as any other work as you can do. Yeah, I remember hearing Tim Keller when he talks about this saying that the Hebrew word that describes what God was doing in the beginning mm. it probably most resonates with the idea of manual labor. Right, yeah. God on his hands and knees digging in the dirt. Right. Um, and then just as he has created and cultivated, mm-hmm. he then gives us that idea to mm. go and create and cultivate. And the other reason I think you asked why people think like that mm-hmm. is because of the strange ideas of heaven that we've smuggled in. Yeah, Where is good. heaven? Most people will say that heaven is somewhere out there, you know, yeah. some non- Up there co- and away in the yeah. future. And, yeah. un- and body, you know, so we sing songs like, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, yeah. my treasures are laid up. So, no, that's completely wrong because it's interesting when Jesus was asked by the disciples, teach us to pray. You know what he said? He says, pray this way, our Father in heaven, let your will be done 
done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. And the Bible doesn't speak about the divorce of heaven from earth, that we're going to leave earth and go to heaven. It talks about the marriage of heaven and earth. Mm. Heaven coming down and transforming earth itself. So that those kinds of misunderstandings, I think, have, have what has contributed to this idea yeah, of the sacred, be, secular divide. Yeah, that there would be that spiritual work is somehow non-material yeah, exactly. and in another realm, yeah. not really touching the ground. It's actually a platonic idea, platonic yeah. philosophy, where material and matter is evil. Gnosticism said the same thing as well. Whereas the non-spiritual soul, Plato would often talk about liber liberty, where the soul is liberated from the prison of the body. Yeah. The Christian faith knows no such thing. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus, mm -hmm. is the single biggest counter to that. Yeah. So, um, how did that, you know, that, those paradigms, I think, get broken down, even as you began to look at Scripture more? Mm -hmm. And study, like I think, uh, you know, you mentioned before, like that when you actually start to look at the, some of the people in right, scripture, yeah. we mm -hmm. find like, oh, they're they're actually very real, yeah. and, and there's far more what we'd call everyday, you know, Joes and Marys right. than uh, necessarily the book full of priests and and prophets. Well, there's, it's interesting because if if you would ask who's the person that we know the most about in the Bible. People might say, oh, Abraham, Isaac, the father of the Jewish faith and the apostle Paul, the great uh, missionary statesman. <laughs> Even the most famous of them have got Abraham has 14 chapters devoted to him. King David had 66 chapters in the Bible devoted to him. Mm. And here's the amazing thing. The many of the Psalms, which are the songs that were written by him, talk about his interior life. So we know far more about the exterior life of David and the interior life of David, in other words, the whole person, mm -hmm. than any other person in the Bible. Mm. And he was an ordinary man. And then one of my mentors, Eugene Peterson, Peterson like he wasn't professional clergy. No, he wasn't, yeah. exactly. Yeah. He was a, first, he was a shepherd. Yeah. Then he was an armor bearer. He was a singer, songwriter, and then eventually he was a king. He was the but, original lover and a fighter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the interesting thing to remember in all of this is that there isn't a single miracle in the entire life of David, which tells us that the ordinary is just as saturated with the miraculous. Mm. And what does that tell us about our work as engineers, doctors, lawyers, housekeepers, stay-at-home mothers, um, healthcare workers? All of that is sacred and crammed with the miraculous, but because it happens every day, like the sun, nobody thinks it's a miracle. If the sun only rose once in the history of the universe, yeah. imagine what an event that would be. Right. Yeah. So I think in, in light of that, you know, this, when you talk about David and the mm. ordinary things, like we realize that um, most of life, in a sense, is lived in the ordinary, right. mundane, mm -hmm. kind of day in, day out things, and yet not to... Um, diminish things that seem obscure, yeah. uh, ordinary, or mm. disconnected right. in our lives, right? right? Like David's own journey, in a sense, from shepherd, and he's writing most of the Psalms. He's written mm -hmm. while he's an obscure nobody right. yeah, in exactly. the yeah. in the you know in in the fields at night, lots of time on his hands, and then, like you said, an armor bearer and things like that. There was a connection in his story that what moments and events might have seemed obscure, unimportant. Um, you know, meaningless or whatever, we're all connected. And you talk about that too, in terms yeah. of like, it wasn't just a light switch right. one day. There was a long story that God mm. was unfolding in your life and all of those things connected. So now you think about, when you think about actually making a change like that, right? Um, 
what, what was, how did you, there's risk. I think there's two things that make me come to mind when you make a change like that. The risk, right? What, what do I mm-hmm. have to lose or what if I fail or whatever? And then, oh, is it the right move? Will I be fulfilled? In the, I know that's a very much Generation X and younger yeah. question, but yeah, um, yeah it, what, what's the risk? What's the loss potential if I make a move like this? Or will I stay fulfilled? Is this the right thing for me? So as you think about both risk and fulfillment yeah. in that journey, how, did you, how would you reflect on yeah. that now? I, I want to come back to those two things, but there's yeah. one thing from the life of David that is so relevant to all of us. Mm. David, even after he was told that he was going to be king, lived in obscurity for years and years and years. Mm. Many of us struggle with obscurity, obscurity yeah. in the workplace, yeah. obscurity in our chosen careers, and even for people who are in the so-called ministry as pastors, mm. obscurity. We are dead scared of obscurity. Mm. And yet for David, how he handled obscurity mm. was the training ground that would eventually get him into the palace. And most of, Je- most of Jesus' life, yeah, exactly. we only know really the details of three years. Yeah. Most of it was is in obscurity. And most of that was as a carpenter yeah. doing the so-called secular work. So I think, and what David did in obscurity, as you pointed out, he paid attention to his soul. Yeah, and good. he looked inside yeah. and then he took what he found to God. If we would approach our workplaces that way, yeah. What does my interactions and my relationships at work revealing about the insides of my life? And can I take those insides to God and then shift my focus on blessing people around me? Yeah. It would transform every work situation yeah, into something good. joyous. Yeah, that's really good. So now to your two questions on yeah. risk. I think the biggest risk for me obviously was uh, financial, right? Mm. Because way back in 1980, at the age of 35, you and I had a couple of conversations about yeah. that. I was making $40,000 a year. Yeah. I remember one time when you were eight or nine years old, we were walking and you said, Dad, how much money would you be making now if you were still at Atomic Energy? At that moment, I said, probably seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. You said, imagine what we could have done with that. <laughs> and you and I had a conversation where I said, okay, honey, what have we not been able to do as a result of my move to the mm-hmm. church? We had the biggest playground in the backyard. Yeah, I had the massive yeah. parking lot yeah. for ball hockey. Every we day. had yeah. people give us opportunities to take vacations in places that we'd never have gone. Mm-hmm. And that whole idea that God is no man's debtor came alive to me. You know, Now, some of the things that we had done earlier, he had helped us. I read a book in 1975 called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And I learned to think biblically about money and stewardship. And mom and I decided that we would voluntarily live well below our income. Most people are living above their income. Mm. A few people live right at their income. But the key to contentment is living voluntarily below your income so you can give it away. Mm. And so that when I made this transition and my salary kind of dropped in half at that point, or two thirds, I should say, it was something we could handle. God Mm. had shown himself. So there were some practical things we did. And then there was this miraculous provision of God's grace. And today, 40 years after that move, Mm. I can say to you, we have lacked absolutely nothing. Mm. So that's the answer to the risk question. Yeah. Yeah. And then... I get to the fulfillment. Yeah. What about fulfillment in terms of saying, okay, you know, like it was, you were doing something you had wanted to do for a long time. Mm. And we're on a good track then. Right. You get off that, you know, whatever ladder it is. I don't know what they call it in science. Yeah. In the, it's not a corporate ladder, but something. Yeah. And what you were doing. And now, okay, am I going to be fulfilled in this? Is this the right move? How? <laughs> Again, you reflect on it afterwards. Right. What did you see about that sense of joy and delight in what God had called you to yeah. do? I think the problem comes because we so often tie fulfillment to monetary rewards 
or non-monetary ones like fame, recognition, and things like that. Mm. Once you redefine life success, not in terms of those quantities, but in terms of relationships, mm. how are the relationships in your life going? Everything changes at that moment. Fulfillment comes in different direction altogether. And then when you and so for me, so much of what Jesus came to talk to us about, including our relationship with Him, was all about transformed relationships. Mm. And paying attention to that is number one brings harmony and fulfillment. And the other thing I think is that doing what you were made to do. Mm. And what I was made to do was to use my gifts, God-given gifts, mm. of, of teaching, studying, what you call the nerdy dimensions mm. of a person's life, and apply it to the greatest subject in the whole world, and that is God himself, mm. and then become a vehicle of communicating that to other people. Now, I did that in both spheres. Yeah. I did that while I was an engineer, uh, as I was still working as a layman in a church, and I did that full-time. So in one sense, I just actually never shifted my primary calling. Yeah. My vocation changed, but, sorry, my, my work changed, yeah. but my vocation or calling never changed. And when you do what you're made to do, yeah. it always brings fulfillment. Yeah, that's an important distinction, I think, when you talk about calling versus, or vocation versus work. Right. You mentioned to me before how, you know, one of the things you understood as, okay, I've, I've said I do to this woman who now I'm married to, right. I have children. Right. And I have people in my right. life. And you talked about redefining success and our really our orientation of energy and value in terms of relationships. Right. So in that sense, those things don't change whether you're um, an engineer or a pastor. Mm -hmm. Certainly the family relationships, you say, okay, continuing to be the husband I'm meant to be, the father I'm meant to be, and continuing to love and serve the people in my life, whether those happen to be other colleagues that I'm working at Atomic Energy of Canada, or whether those are people I'm serving in the thing. So I think when you talk about calling, you know, Jesus um, was sent to a people, right. was in a sense called to, mm -hmm. like into this world and to the disciples and the community that start the church, like he understood his calling in a sense as relational oriented. And so that's the same for us. And I think we don't often think in terms of just separating those two things a little bit, like my work, not unimportant, but the work can change, mm -hmm. but how and why I'm doing the work remains the same. Right, because in my case, the primary gifts, if you will, are this ability to study, harness knowledge, systematize it, teach other people, all in the context of a relationship. I, uh, someone put change beautifully. I, I developed it for myself in the context of parenting first, but applies everything and the other dimension. Truth taught in the context of a relationship backed up by example transforms. Yeah. Truth taught in the context of a relationship backed up by example. And that's what I was doing in both places in, in, in a real sense. And I think that's what made all the difference in there. And really... <laughs> Even in the very transition that I made to this full-time pastoral ministry, mm -hmm. I couldn't do it without mom's complete agreement. I always used to say to somebody, I could have remained a nuclear engineer with my wife being anti-nuclear. I think so. <laughs> but there was no way I could have moved into this pastoral work without her being completely and totally called. So I had to pay attention to her calling as well, yeah. in a sense. Right away, it teaches you that you're not living for yourself. Yeah. You're living for others and with others. Mm, that's good. Mm. Uh, we want to just pause for a moment here and take some time to worship. And the band's going to lead us in a song called Oceans. And we've sung it for a number of years at our church. It describes this idea of being called out 
into deep places, places that we aren't necessarily in control of, where we can't feel, you know, the bottom with our feet. And I think even just this conversation just makes me realize that is, is in a sense, it describes the calling that God has on all of our lives, whatever it is that we are doing, that we do it in a way where we are trusting him and in a space where, no, we're not in control of everything. Um, we're not in the driver's seat, but that God invites us into a place that is deep, that is, has risk involved in it but is an ocean, is beautiful, and it is a place where we find him. And so maybe you've sung the song many times before, the words are familiar to you, but if not, or if they are, just think about them in, sense, in a sense, even of your own life, the things that God has called you into, those places where you can't feel the bottom, but he's inviting you to trust him. Or maybe that's a, that's a decision you're facing even now. Either way, I'm just trusting that this is a message that is intersecting, not just, um, you know, the story we're talking about here, but your own. Right. Call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail, and there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, where faith will stand, and I will call upon your name. Oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. For I am yours, and you are mine. Oh. and deep as water. Sovereign hand will be my guide. Your fame may fail and fear surrounds me. I never fail, and you won't start now. And I will call upon your name. Ever wonder, and my faith will be made. 
made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders, and you walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. just in in our final um kind of comments dad a, a couple of things hmm. um come to mind that i'd love to just spend our last few minutes on you said that um you've said that this to me and me actually also having made the same change i already feel like even though i'm only 11 years in hmm. can resonate with it you said i don't know if anyone else was changed through my ministry of course they were i can tell you i was one <laughs> of them but you said but i know i have been changed through it and in a sense, this invitation, this call was a huge gift to you personally. What has changed for you? How has God changed you, I mm -hmm. guess, through this? Mm -hmm. I would say that when I first started what we might call ministry in a church, mm -hmm. well, I only knew one thing. I knew how to study and teach. I knew nothing else about church. So a very narrow understanding. Important, mind you. That's what they wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. And most people ex ex encounter me the bulk of my congregation on that one and a half hours on Sunday morning. So it was very important, mind you, but it was too restricted and too narrow uh, until I began to realize that ministry was not my gift to God, but God's gift to me in transforming me. And I was a very poor listener. Hmm. And I would generally only deal with people at the superficial level, not shallow, but at the surface level, I should say. Mm -hmm. So they had problems, they had questions. I knew the scriptural principles and stories that would speak to that, and I would share that with them. I didn't know how to listen to people's heart cries. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to ask questions to go below the surface and unearth the real question behind the presenting questions. Mm -hmm. So that's, that I learned listening. I just mm -hmm. did not, I was not a good listener. I was a very poor listener, actually. Mm -hmm. So I would say one of the biggest changes that happened in my life is I'm a much, much better listener. Secondly, asking questions rather than giving answers. <laughs> Jesus was a master at asking questions. He gave far more. He taught, but he asked a lot of questions. Mm. I was so used to giving answers. Now I spend a lot more time asking questions mm. because people can forget answers, especially if they don't like them. But a question doesn't end run around people's defenses and lodges in there. They can't forget the question. Mm. So I learned the importance of asking questions. Thirdly, I learned how important it was to have suffering people in your life. Mm. For whatever reason, God, in his, I don't say grace anymore or love because God can be gracious and loving to people whose life take a different trajectory. I just say providence. Providentially, I have not known much suffering in my life. Mm. But the sheer amount of pain in a congregation mm -hmm. is massive. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I would not have known how to speak to hurting people yeah. if I hadn't been a pastor. My closest friend in the church mm-hmm. was a man who had been shot in a hunting accident six months prior to his wedding and spent my entire life that I knew him 30-odd years as a paraplegic in a wheelchair. Mm. I learned so much. Mm. Outside of the church, I probably would never have made friends with him. Yeah. So those are, I'd say, three of the main ways. Uh, being a good listener, asking questions, and learning from suffering people. Because I think uh, it was one of the elders in our church, he said, if you really want wisdom, mm. go to people who have suffered, but have emerged with their faith intact. Mm. You can find people who have suffered whose faith has exploded. You can find people like me who have faith and haven't suffered much. Mm. But you find people who have suffered and emerge with wisdom, yeah. emerge with uh, faith, yeah. they have a lot of wisdom. I think it's one of the things I've appreciated well, a lot of things I appreciate about you, but I would say one of them is that you have continued to want to learn. Mm-hmm. And while maybe that learning early in your life was book learning, mm-hmm. that hasn't stopped. You love no, books. No. But you, my memories of you over the years was talking about the various people in our congregation and the kind of people they were and what they were teaching you. I think like, um, you know, at our dinner table, and even as we got older as young adults, we would, you know, sit in the evenings, Sunday nights and talk about church and things like that. And you never complained about the people in your church. And, you know, like I feel very much blessed too that the people in our church are such a blessing to I, us. Mm-hmm. But it's not an easy uh, role as no. you're walking to the pastor. But you were always talking about people like your friend, uh, like you mentioned, but many others who were shaping your life. You mm. would quote many of the people in your congregation, right. things that they had said to you, wisdom. And so I think like, um, if I can go off script, you said, hey, I didn't realize I wasn't a good listener. Yeah. What else would you say you realized you weren't good at that you learned <laughs> you know, uh, more? Th- those are the three big things, I think. Yeah. Uh, there's probably a whole host of other things in there. I think saying things encouragingly rather than discouragingly, mm. uh, I learned about... Uh, how people grow. We'll mm. talk pro- probably more about that next week when mm. we talk about that. But how do people grow? Mm. And they don't grow by lectures. Yeah. Uh, they don't go even mostly by exhortation, yeah. but by encouragement. I learned mm. about the power of encouragement yeah. in there. And I think I learned to depend on God in ways because most people's problems are not within your ability to solve. Yeah. I, I didn't grow in competence. Yeah. <laughs> I grew in incompetence. Oh, that's so I good. realized more and more yeah. of how little I can do. Yeah. So I suddenly learned what Jesus meant when he said, hey, apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah. You know. So that's I think really I learned good. humbling. Though ministry, so to speak, any ministry, whether you're lame or not, but for me, it just took a man who could have been very proud. Yeah. You know? And just kept him by the grace of God, not through any intrinsic virtue in me. Mm. But I kept coming up against situations like, I can't do this. There's a story in the Bible about a king who was being attacked by three different armies. And he threw up his hands and said, God, I don't know what to do. My eyes are upon you. Yeah. That's a prayer I prayed many, many times. Yeah, so good. I remember saying to one of my <laughs> friends, I was probably about eight years into ministry. And he said to me, I'd known him for a number of years, went to business school together. He said, so what are you learning? I said, well, <laughs> I said, either I am sinning more than I used to yeah. now that I'm a pastor, which I really hope is not the case, yeah. or, which I think is probably true, I am just so much more aware of my sin. Oh, that's another huge thing. And next, like, week, next week, we'll talk about that for but sure. But you talk about, more. I think in that, that's the humility comes yeah. from, and, yeah. and sin, I would say also just, and my limitations, my yeah. brokenness, totally. my weakness, you yeah. know? 
And I think through the years, even if many people, some of you in our congregation have been courageous enough to just come and say, hey, that hurt. Or, you know, I wish you would have. You learn by that. All, I feel like time. you all get shaped by the, by the relationships in mm-hmm. the community. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, just to close as you're listening to this, and, and of course, every story is different. So there's parts of, of you know, Sunder's story that would resonate with you. Parts that you'd say, oh, totally different than mine. Um, but I think a few things that I've been listening to have, have been affected my own story and I want to leave with you today. One is this idea of uh, we are all called, if I can use that word again, to be faithful. Mm. And, you know, uh, we talked about obscurity, how, how so mm. often mm. we feel obscure. And I think that's, that's just true. I think one of the most pervasive marks of being a broken human being is our insecurity. And yeah. some of that insecurity yeah. is the obscurity that mm. we're not quite good enough, we're not enough to be noticed. And certainly in a culture of, of likes and followers and subscribers and, you know, fame, like that it, we can feel like, or maybe you have this sense of like, oh, I never quite achieved what I thought I was going to achieve. Or maybe you're at the front end of that. Maybe you're in school and you're thinking, will I ever, you Mm. know, become something or that I want to be or my parents are or that I've seen older people that I would like to. Um, There is this reminder in scripture and that calling that God has in our lives to be faithful, Mm -hmm. to give ourselves in a sense, it's not just sort of putting in time, but to give our hearts to whatever and more importantly, whoever is in front of us that there is that general sense of like that is because, not only because there are beautiful things to be done in obscurity. I was reading a blog this week and they quoted um, the the movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which is kind of a funny Mm. movie. And the artist that he's chasing down who is observing the ghost's snow leopard and uh, played by Sean Penn. And he's trying to photograph the the leopard. And he says to Walter Mitty, "Um, beauty doesn't need or demand to be seen. Mm. And so I think that's just a reminder there are beautiful things in front of us to do, even if it seems like no one else is looking. But also that God is at work in ways that we cannot see even in the midst of obscurity because we are not obscure because he sees us. And so faithfulness, knowing that there's beautiful things to be done in the middle, right in front of where we are, and that God is working in a bigger picture in a bigger way that we can't see. Right. And, you know, I just want to encourage you, right? When David went finally into the palace, just before... Before that, we read in the Bible that the Holy Spirit had departed from King Saul, but it re-entered the palace when David went in. What a difference it would make to your workplace every week if on Monday morning, driving into work, you said, hey, the Holy Spirit and I are about to enter wherever you're working. Just think about that. Yeah, it's good. I think the last thing I want to leave with you too is maybe something that's a, a, a good counter perspective to this idea of being faithful. And that is as Christians, as people made by God mm. in the image of God, we should not be afraid to take risks Yeah, of all people because we're not afraid of failing because failing is not a statement about who we are. Right. God says, you're my child. Yeah. Yeah. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. You are a brother or a sister of Christ. That's who you are. Who cares if you fail things? It's not a statement about your value. And so we should not be afraid. Um, and we should not be afraid because we know money isn't everything. So I can right. live with it. I can live without it. And yeah. in the end, you don't take any of it with you. And there are riches for us in the life to come right. that will far outweigh this. So we don't need to be afraid of that. And I think, you know, uh, I remember reading Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, and he described work 
And with this, we'll close. He said, you know, when we, dis- when we think about God, you mentioned, Dad, the garden and God hmm. the gardener and putting people in a garden. He said, there's a difference between a gardener and a park ranger. A park ranger is meant to keep everything as it is. <laughs> don't move the wood chips off the side onto the path. Don't, you know, don't cut down trees and rearrange things. Like they're making sure nothing moves. But he said, a gardener is always moving things to find better soil, the right sun, the right light, certain plants, certain things grow well here, other things. So that idea of cultivating inherently involves risk, moving things, moving ourselves, taking risk. And so I think bringing alongside this idea of faithfulness and obscurity, because God sees, but also no fear in taking risk, in joining God in the great unknown, (laughs) right? Where our feet may fail. Are, are two things, I think, beautiful things that we yeah, can right. bring together. And I see them in your story. So, Dad, thanks so much for being vulnerable, for being open, for sharing and having this conversation. And I trust that it's been a blessing for you. Right. And as always, we just encourage you, if there are others that you think could benefit from this, by all means, please share it with them. I want to close just with that blessing yeah. of you having a renewed sense of passion mm. to be faithful where, where you are, in the time where you are, but also a blessing of, of that, that God himself would blow away the clouds of fear in your life mm. that might be holding you back from living and thinking and taking risks that he's inviting you to take.